and welcome to the Herbert Smith Freehills Capital Markets podcast, a six-part series looking at transactional trends through a legal lens. The theme of today's podcast is underwriting risk. I'm Amy Waddington and I'm joined today by HSF corporate partners, Charles Howarth and Mike Flockhart. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Mike, underwriting risk has moved up the agenda of both banks and corporates recently. Why do you think that is? Well, Amy, we're talking here about hard underwriting risk. So the risk banks take when they are underwriting, for example, a rights issue, where they're putting actual capital at risk. That typically arises in two scenarios. Um, first, where a corporate client is undertaking a refinancing, often in a distress scenario. And second, where a corporate client is raising funds to fund an acquisition. In each case, certainty of funds is very important to clients, and the bank's ability to offset risk is not absolute, although banks have a range of tools at their disposal to mitigate risk. However, fundamentally, the banks are exposed to the risk of shareholders not participating in the capital raise. And we've seen several examples recently where either shareholder participation was lower than expected or where shareholder reaction to transaction prompted concern that it might be. And are you talking specifically about the Kia rights issue? Yes, specifically the Kia rights issue, but also the Elementis and Restaurant Group rights issues too. I would stress that in each case the rights issue got away, and only on Kia was there a stick for the banks to pick up. And even that was limited thanks to some deft stick management. So we're not talking about a disaster having occurred, but more about the warning signs there might be one down the line. The tremors before an earthquake, as it were. Exactly. Uh, Potentially. Let's hope it doesn't happen, but it's worth being prepared. And Mike, are you saying this is a new phenomenon in the UK? I think so. Obviously, there have been rights issue funded acquisitions in the past that have failed because shareholders did not support the deal. Uh, G4S, ISS, Prudential AIA spring to mind. And during the financial crisis, Bradford Bingley's rights issue also failed. But for there to be two in the space of three months where there was significant shareholder opposition, and for that to be followed in short order by the problems on the key rights issue, it does rather focus minds on, on the risks and the consequences. The Elementus deal is interesting. It did get away, but only after the M&A was repriced and the rights issue resized. And even then, take it was a little subdued. I think it was about 87.5%, whereas the norm is 95 to 96. So yeah, a little bit lower. But what's the consequence of the lower take-up? Well, lower take-up means a bigger rump for the banks to sell. And if demand isn't there for the rump, then that translates to a bigger stick, which means the banks themselves taking up shares and then needing to dispose of them as principal in the aftermarket. Which is what happened in Kia. Although, as you say, Mike, that was a very well-managed process and the underwriters' losses were contained in the end. There's some degree of alignment of interest between the banks and the shells in that situation. Shareholders don't want further pressure on the share price as a result of banks ending up with a large stake and sitting on the register as natural sellers. But of course, the banks themselves can't count on that. Exactly, and the situation could be exploited. I'd hesitate to say manipulated by shareholders not participating in the rights issue or in the rump, but being willing to acquire shares in the aftermarket at below the issue price. And what do you think the consequences of that would be? Well, one possibility is that we see banks proposing more widespread use of the standby structure, including for capital raisings that aren't connected to acquisitions. The standby structure substantially de-risks rights issues from an underwriter perspective by allowing the price to be set after the market becomes aware of the transaction. So the transaction is priced into the rights issue price. But of course, standby underwriting has its own price. And is that sort of mechanic in the interest of the issuer and its shareholders? That's more debatable. If shareholders intend to participate, then it's neutral to net positive because if the share issue price is based off a lower prevailing share price, then non-participants may experience greater dilution and they may not be fully compensated for that through the proceeds of rump sales. 
But for other shareholders, such a structure may look as if it's compelling them to participate by the threat of dilution. Issuers are likely to hear a range of views from their shareholders and won't be able to please everyone. And of course, it matters greatly if the transaction is subject to shareholder approval. OK, thanks, Charles. Mike, you're particularly interested in the M&A aspects of this, aren't you? I am. To Charles's point, often when a rights issue is being used to fund an acquisition, the acquisition itself requires shareholder approval. So the shareholders have the means to object if they either don't like the underlying transaction or the financing structure. That is not necessarily the case in a rights issue without an acquisition, because most companies have an annual authority allowing them to issue up to two-thirds of their capital, which allows them to raise a substantial amount without shareholder approval. On acquisition-related financings, banks will walk across investors before the transaction is announced to assess their support for the transaction. Often investors will only have 48 to 72 hours to respond, and not all investors will agree to be wall-crossed. And of course, they're being asked a complex question to assess whether they supported an M&A transaction and an associated financing package on the basis of only a limited investor presentation. Investors don't always give clear and uniform feedback, and that presents challenges for issuers and the banks in assessing the level of support. Right. That lack of clarity can clearly be problematic. Yes, for the issuer, for the underwriting banks, and of course also for for the seller. How so the seller? Well, if you take the position of the seller in an M&A transaction, they they, they have an asset, it's on the cusp of announcing a deal, and suddenly it's confronted with the possibility the deal, deal may fail, and if it does so, that will be public. It's very unattractive for the seller, because then the whole market will see not just the price at which the deal was struck, but also then if shareholders subsequently vote down the deal, the fact that that, 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 that price was not supported by the, the buyer's shareholders, and that leaves the asset tarnished and makes it harder for the seller to sell in a subsequent process. So sellers, um, increasingly, we think, will look for comfort that the transaction is deliverable. And how might they get that comfort? On the Elementus deal, after it was recut, the seller obtained irrevocable undertakings from some shareholders and other statements of support. This is likely to become the norm. Yes, I think sellers will, will insist on those. Um, and well advised issuers will be thinking in advance uh, about what they can offer to assuage seller concerns around certainty of funding. Uh, ultimately, any shareholder approval requirement will increase sellers' nervousness about the ability of an issuer to execute a deal, which in turn will disadvantage um, listed companies in competitive sale processes. Uh, and any aspect of the financing structure which increases the risk of shareholder opposition, as arguably, as Charles said earlier, standby underwriting can, increases that risk a little further. There's also a potential for conflicts of interest um, between the interests of the banks looking to de-risk and wanting to use tools available to them to do so, and the interests of the company in not losing shareholder support and potentially triggering contractual remedies. So what do you suggest to get around that? Ultimately, I think both issuers and banks need to think very carefully about the stand- how the standby operates in different scenarios. You cannot plan for every scenario, but you need to think about what happens in the event shareholders are lukewarm and, and probably role-play that together. The clause in the standby that sets out the factors that can be taken into account in determining price and the process for determining price should be carefully considered. And both parties need to consider whether fee clauses that incentivise tight discounts are appropriate or could um, create perverse incentives by making it less attractive for shareholders and more likely they'll vote down the transaction. And of course, termination events need to be very carefully defined. I think that's a key point. I mean, the whole purpose of a standby underwriting agreement is to provide certainty of funds. It should be clear that adverse shareholder reaction to a transaction is not of itself a MAC event, or it undermines the whole purpose. Shareholder reaction may go to pricing, i.e. it may be a factor the parties take into account in agreeing the rights issue price. I think that's commonly understood, but it's not always documented clearly. 
Thanks, Charles. And I think I'm right in saying that there hasn't been a right issue pulled by the banks in the UK in over 30 years. So doesn't that raise the question as to whether the termination rights have any teeth anyway? That's a very fair question, Amy. We're aware of a couple of occasions during the financial crisis when banks considered terminated but ultimately didn't. There are two key reasons, a lack of case law and clarity around what material adverse change actually means, which means any bank terminating on that basis would assume a significant liability risk, and a concern about reputational damage if a bank's perceived to have abandoned a client and its shareholders at time of need. You can never say never, but it would have to be a very difficult scenario before a bank would pull. Thanks, Charles. So what else can banks do to reduce risk? Sub-underwriting is key. Our sense from recent deals is that deals are sub-underwritten to a lesser extent now than they were during the financial crisis, and it'll be interesting to see if banks become a little bit more conservative following recent experiences. There is, of course, a trade-off between laying off risk and retaining a large share of the fees for the banks. The other thing banks can do is have in place an effective strategy for placing the rump on the stick. Often deals done by syndicates, and there are quite a few legal and commercial issues to work through determining how any stick actually gets managed, particularly in light of the competition and market abuse issues which was raised by the ANZ case in Australia. You really don't want to be thinking about those in real time after a rights issue is closed, so again, forethought required. Being realistic, I think we also have to expect that the increased risk for underwriters will be reflected in fee rates. It's perhaps too early to say that the risk profile has changed as opposed to the perception of risk, but events like the key rights issue serve to remind everyone that banks are taking principal risk on rights issues, and you would expect that to be reflected in fee rates. Thanks, Mike. That's a helpful reminder indeed. So that's it for this week's episode of the Herbert Smith Freehills Capital Markets podcast. Until next time, if you have any questions that you want answered on a future episode or just answered full stop, please do drop us a line at cmpodcast at hsf.com. Thanks for listening. And-